Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Mary O'Hagan is currently Executive Director, Lived Experience in the Mental Health and Wellbeing Division at the Department of Health in Victoria. Amongst her many accolades, Mary has been an advisor to the United Nations and the World Health Organization and full-time Mental Health Commissioner in New Zealand between 2000 and 2007. Speaking about the unresolved challenges within the sector, Mary joins us today as our guest speaker. Mary O'Hagan, thanks so much for joining us and choosing to spend some time with us and the listeners and sharing your story. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks very much. We appreciate you coming and, and doing your presentation at the conference. Be much appreciated. To give our listeners some context, do you want to tell them a little bit about you and where it all started for you as it relates to your journey with mental health? Yes, my journey with mental health started when I was about 18 years old, when I began to develop major mental distress. That went on for about the next nine years and I was in and out of hospitals, was given a very pessimistic prognosis from the psychiatrists saying that I had this condition for life, that I'd always need medication, I needed to lower my horizons for my career and I should think carefully about having children in case I passed my genes on to them. Wow. And, uh, and so from that experience. I mean, I have to say that the biggest pleasure of my life has been proving them wrong on all those counts, on all those predictions, but it was a pretty dismal system that I was thrown into. And Is this New Zealand at the time? Yes, in New Zealand, yeah. yeah. It's still bad. I've just heard a story from a 29-year-old who had very similar experiences to me when I was a young woman. So this sort of stuff is still going on inside the system. What was it like back then with you going through that mental distress? What did it take for you to have the courage to seek help? Well, it didn't take courage to seek help. It took courage to get out of there. It took courage for me to stop seeing myself as a chronic psychiatric patient, which is what had been bestowed upon me by the psychiatrist. It took courage for me to say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to have a career as a service user. I want to go on and have a 
and have a good life. So it's interesting So because you were the leader of the psychiatric survivor movement in New Zealand. A leader, yeah. What, what was what was that about? About the, What was the movement about and how did it come about? I assume it had something to do with that. Yes, the movement was grew up in the 1970s, although before then there have been pockets of people who've been, you know, have experienced distress, have been through some sort of system and have come out of it and wanted to advocate for change. But really the current movement began in the 1970s. It was very much a liberation movement, you know, and there were lots of those in the 70s. Yeah. And the people who were the original leaders in that movement had been in psychiatric hospitals. They had been given compulsory treatment. They had been given sort of pessimistic prognoses like the one, you know, the one I described. Yeah. And they were experiencing a lot of stigma and discrimination and social exclusion. And that's really the conditions upon which the survivor movement began. And so would it, did it, it would have taken a, a fair bit of, I mean, back in, because this is before social media and all that sort of stuff, so to, to actually get support and actually try and advocate and get some traction would have been something that was quite difficult. Well, I mean, yeah, well, nobody saw it as difficult back then because nobody imagined yeah, what social it. media could do or what it was. Look, I've still got some magazines from the 1970s, Madness Network News. I've got a whole box of them. They, you know, people just had their own ways of getting the word out there. There was a lot of paper-based newsletters. There was a radio, TV, so so it seems difficult now, but that was just the way people did things back then and they didn't sort of think we're missing out on a, a new technology because no one imagined it. Yeah. When you look back uh, at, during those times of growing up, do you feel like the the service offerings then and where things are at have come quite a long way since then? Not Not nearly far enough. Is that right? No. We still have a... You know, a mental health and well-being system that is dominated by what I call pills and pillows. And when you talk to anyone about their recovery, they'll say, "Oh, the the pills and pillows didn't help, or they might have helped a bit. They might have been harmful." But they certainly, even people who were most enthusiastic about the treatment they got, said, "Well, that was only ten or twenty percent of what I needed in order to support my recovery." I needed things to help me do my parenting, to help me find it and keep work and housing, you know, restore my relationships with my friends and family, find meaning in my distress, to address the trauma that might have led to my mental distress. So there are a whole lot of other needs that people have whose lives have been sort of smashed around by the fact that they've had these experiences but also been in a system that hasn't responded in a holistic way and has been quite coercive. The implications of being of of being treated in that manner, if you had have really listened to them, would have been, I mean, devastating. Well, I mean, the awful thing is a lot of people who end up in the mental health system have had previous trauma. Yeah. You know, I think childhood sexual abuse is common. People who've been, you know, from groups in the community that have been colonised or have been brought up in desperate poverty or anything like that. 
and they go into a system that actually exacerbates and re-triggers the trauma. And there's a classic case if you've experienced sexual abuse and then you're, you know, you're sort of manhandled by a nurse and held down to get an injection. You can imagine that that's a, that has too many echoes yeah. with your sexual abuse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yet that's not... The system doesn't have a kind of a, a sensitivity to those issues. What about the label? I mean, yeah, I mean the, the influence that that can have on you for the rest of your life if you had of listened to those people that, that told you, mm. you know, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never be able to do anything, don't have kids. Mm. When if you really did listen to that, I mean, it, it, oh. it could have. Imagine yeah. how we, do you think often about how your life could have been if you actually laid down and just let that decide I, who you were? Oh, yeah, I, I, I think I could have had a very limited life. And I see people, you know, who've gone into the system as a young person. They have been told a story. They have accepted that story. And their outlook has not been that great. So one of my key messages is don't believe what they tell you. Yeah. I mean, well, be very discerning about about stories given to you that sort of life-limiting because they don't have to turn out to be like that. And it can be hard for people that are help-seeking, can't it, to actually know what they're being told if that – I mean, to trust it. Yeah, yeah. How do they know? I mean, how – I mean, this is a tough environment. Yeah, yeah. And, look, the reason I was able to question it, I think, was, one, I was brought up by my parents to question authority. So that that was a bit of a good training for me. And the other thing is that I, I read books, I read sort of anti-psychiatry books and I read the early literature that was coming out of the survivor movement. And what that enabled me to do was to understand that the the story I was being given about my mental illness and how it was chronic and how I'd never be able to have the life I thought I, I thought I would have. That's a highly contested story. So I could, you know, I managed to be able to find other stories that could replace the one I was given. And that is incredibly important for people to know that the story that you're given by the psychiatric system is highly contested. And there are other ways of looking at these issues. And there's hope for people. Mm. Do you wonder the experience you heard recently with the your person that told you their story, was that through the psychiatric ward as well? Is yeah. That, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's quite scary. You, you can't, sometimes I think I'm a bit cynical and, you know, maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating the lack of change that I've seen over the, my lifetime of work. And then you hear a story of a 29-year-old and you think mm. that, that could have been my story yeah, yeah, about her interaction with the system. So wh- where did you go then after that? What happened? So after I got out of the system, I, w- I thought I was about 27 and I thought, gosh, I, I need a job. And I thought, I don't. No one will employ me because, you know, I've been through the system and I hadn't picked up any qualifications. And I was really interested in how the lived experience voice could be 
introduced into the mental health system. So I started up an organisation called Psychiatric Survivors in Auckland in the late 1980s and we did peer-led advocacy and peer support and we, you know, we, we had several FTEs working for us and volunteers and we developed a really strong community of people who had lived experience. What sort of time frame roughly was this? This was in the late 80s. So you were getting lived experience, having a voice and trying to advocate for that. Yeah. At the mid-80s, end-80s. Yep. That's incredible. Well, it was starting in Australia then as well. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you you can understand why some of us who've been around for a long time think, well, what the hell, when are things really going to start changing? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know whether it's, I mean, at the moment it feels like there's a lot of a lot of a lived experience movement happening, Yeah, especially with the inquiries that are going on and the advisory boards and, and being involved in the process of co-design and co-production. Feels like that, but are you saying that maybe it's always been this way, we're just starting to see? Look, I think there is a change happening and I think it's probably most obvious in Victoria where the... Because of the Royal Commission into the mental health system there, that created an authorising environment for lived experience leadership like we haven't had before. And it also had various recommendations which were about building up lived experience leadership and governance, peer-led and peer-delivered services and workforce development for lived experience. So there's a lot of potential at the moment for lived experience to really to to have an you know to develop an equal footing in the mental health system with a clinical perspective so it is optimistic you are optimistic about where this is heading well it's a guarded optimism i i mean i'm you know there's always you know I, i'll never underestimate the power of the status quo it's incredibly powerful and quite hard to break that power. But I think there is enough momentum coming out of the Royal Commission in Victoria, at least, to think we've got a, we've got a, you know, we've got a chance here, a good chance. And so you, you wrote a book as well. Yeah. Madness Made Me. Yeah. Tell us about that and what drove you to write that. Write that, sorry. So really the reason I wrote Madness Made Me was to to actually show people that madness is a full human experience that you can derive some value of, out of. So madness, the word I chose to call those experiences, was something that taught me an awful lot. Not just the direct experience of the extreme mood swings I had, but the way I had to change my life in order to experience recovery as well. And when I was in the the system, nobody recognised the work I was doing to recover because they didn't even believe in recovery. They believed in just maintaining me. And And I feel that some of those experiences I had, while they were overwhelming and some were incredibly painful, some were incredibly fantastic, they, they were human experiences that just as valid in a way as any other human experience. And I, I wanted to get across that this wasn't 
you know, some tragic pathology, it was, a, it was actually a growth experience for me to go through that. So that was the first part of the book. And the second part of the book was really about how I applied that understanding in the work that I've done since then. And so was this after you were the Mental Health Commissioner in New Zealand? So I started writing the book while I was the Mental okay. Health Commissioner, and it took me about 10 years to write because I was pretty busy doing other things like yeah. bringing up kids and doing full-time work and all that sort of thing. Tell me about your experience as being the Mental Health Commissioner in New Zealand during from 2007. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Mental Health Commissioner in New Zealand at that stage had three commissioners and they said one of them needs to be person who's used the, the service and and my role there was to was, was to articulate and promote a recovery approach for services in New Zealand and to and also to promote approaches to reducing stigma and discrimination I, I guess the big lesson from my time at the Mental Health Commission was to understand that we need to bring people along with us so as lived experience leaders we need allies and we need people in the system who are possibly at the more progressive end of that system to actually support us and to be explicit allies for us not silent allies because we couldn't do it on our own and without that organized allyship I think we our approach was doomed and there was a quite a big backlash against lived experience after I left the Mental Health Commission. And one psychiatrist said to me before I left, well, this isn't, this isn't a Mental Health Commission, it's a Consumer Commission, which I thought was a kind of a backhand compliment. But yeah. at the same time, we, we do need, maybe not the guy who said that to me, but some of his more progressive colleagues, we needed their support more. Right. Yeah. Right. It was it was it quite segmented over there in New Zealand in those days as far as support with Yeah, I think there was less support for lived experience leadership than there is now. Yeah. Yeah. But there were still plenty of people who supported it, but we, we needed we need we needed their explicit support. As someone that's worked as part of the government driving the system. What do you think is the issue with the system? Do you think it's – and why is it so hard to change? Why is it – are there better models out there that we look at and we can say, man, let's just do it this way or what about that way? And then – but like you said earlier, the status quo. Yeah, it's the status quo. But I think one of the issues with the mental health system is that for some people at least in that system, it's coercive. And for everyone who's in it, it's potentially coercive. And I think that skews the way the system works. It becomes the axle upon which the system rolls. And so, and what we have really is a system where there's a lot of short-term risk management and the, the main tools for that, hospitals, locked up hospitals, the Mental Health Act and medications. And, and that... That's a system that's driven around crisis. Very reactive. Yeah, very reactive system. Mm. And it means that they don't pay attention to the things that really matter to people, 
like I want friends, I, I want a partner, I want to have children, I want to have a job or to contribute in some meaningful way and I want a decent house to live in. And while, so, and the whole, the accountabilities in the system are all skewed to towards, well, we're just going to mop up these risks and make sure that nothing bad happens so that my job or my organisation isn't on the line and there aren't, you know, several oversight organisations doing inquiries. And so they, they're completely focusing on the stuff that isn't so important in the long term to people. And so we really need that time to elevate out of it and try and build a structure that would better serve the outcomes of people. Yeah, yeah. And then go back in and try and implement the change yeah. rather than saying, oh, when we catch up, we'll, we'll get on top of this and then we'll figure it out whether you never ever do that, do you? We've, we've got to reorient the system so that we get things like compulsory treatment down to almost zero. And one of the ways you do that is a greater tolerance for risk within the system, but also preventing these crises from happening in the first place by having much more support for people downstream, you know, before they get to crisis point. What do you think some of the biggest challenges that we're facing at the moment in the mental health sector? Psychiatry. I think psychiatry is very powerful. They sit at, they still sit at the, the psychiatry sits at the centre of the system. Psychiatry dominates the discourse. They dominate the use of the resources and they think that their knowledge is is the most potent, critical, core knowledge that is needed in the mental health context. And so they don't see themselves as just a bit player, which I think they should be. They see themselves at the centre. And that's really difficult because it's very hard then for all those other things that I was talking about that people need help with to actually get any traction, any funding, uh, and things like that. So that psychiatry is a problem. And I, and I say that I'm not anti-psychiatry. I think psychiatry has a place, but not right at the centre of the system. And who do you think put them there in the centre? I mean... Well, uh, I mean, it's really interesting. So the profession of psychiatry grew within the context of the early asylums you know, the old psychiatric hospitals, probably starting in the early 19th century. Mm -hmm. And I often think, what would it have been like? Because they didn't even have any treatments. I mean, they were, they were kind of doctors, but they didn't have, they had no treatments. Well, they had terrible treatments. They had cold baths and awful sort of early forms of shock treatment in a way. They used to whirl people around and do terrible things. But some of the stuff they did was quite humane. But so, so what I do often wonder about, though, is what if the services for people with mental distress had grown up in the social services sector? I think it, it would have been better because right. they would have been more holistic about how they went about things. Let's talk about what you're doing at the moment in Victoria. Yeah. What's your role and what, what are you doing at the moment in Victoria? So I am the Executive Director, Lived Experience Branch in the Mental Health and Wellbeing Division in the Department of Health in Victoria. 
which takes a long time to say. Yes, it was a long yeah. – uh, that's why I thought you should say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so now the Department of Health has several divisions, one of which is the Mental Health and Wellbeing Division. Mm-hmm. The division has several branches, one of which is the lived experience branch. Right. We have 24 FTEs in our branch, and I think the division's got about 200 or 250 staff. So we're still a small part of the whole division, but having said that, there's never, ever been the, in you know, Australia or New Zealand or Canada, I'm not too sure about the US, or any other country I know of, there's never been a branch inside the bureaucracy which is lived experience led and made up of people with lived experience. And so that makes a huge difference to have people at a senior level with lived experience and a whole critical mass of us. There have been people working in the bureaucracy with lived experience, but they've been on their own and they've been in low-status jobs. And so I think this is going to make a big difference. I mean, you've achieved a lot in the in your mental health experience professionally over the time that you've been involved. Where to from here for you? I mean, would you love to stay on there and see the change inflicted and, and actually see it come to fruition? Yeah, so I'm very keen to influence how things happen in Victoria. Yes. You know, I think any reform program is at risk of just really kind of doing business as usual with a few add-ons and not actually doing real transformative change. And I, yeah. and I think... Lip service. I, I wouldn't... I don't see... You know, I think the reforms in Victoria are at the same risk of any, as any other reforms of not actually achieving the vision set out by the Royal Commission. So, and and I think, you know, people in the department see that too. It's not... It's really difficult when you're... We've got a very, very tight, time-rushed program of reforms. And what the first thing to go is thinking. There's no time for thinking. It's just pushing out these, these reforms. And yeah. that means that people just sort of fall back to their default ways of working because they don't have time to really think about or bring other people in to co-design, properly co-design new ways of doing things. So that that's a risk and, and partly brought about by by the tight timeframes. Are you confident looking at it that you can actually, you know, create real change with this? Well, I've got a little humbler in my objectives as I've got older. And look, I don't think we're going to change everything, but I think we're going to change some things. And the the key thing that I wanting to achieve out of this role and our branch is really embedding lived experience leadership across the system in governance, in management, and in, in the delivery of services and also in the monitoring and evaluation of services and actually growing the numbers and the diversity of the lived experience workforce and if we can do that in the next few years or 10 years or whatever, however long it takes, I think those things, if we get lived experience embedded into the system in those various ways I've just talked about, that operates 
brings about its own momentum for system change. Yeah. Because you've got people with different perspectives at the heart of the system making decisions about things like funding and service delivery and policy and so on. So I see a key strategy for change is not so much implementing the other recommendations, although they're important, but putting a kind of a catalyst for change inside the system, which is lived experience leadership. Yes. Do you, as you look forward into the future, do you, uh, is that what excites you most? Is that opportunity for lived experience yep. to have a voice where it needs to be? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And we're seeing a rise even in the peer workforce as well, which is coming through. I mean, do, do you look at the growing workforce in the mental health space and get excited that, you know, it's we're finally attracting the people needed to try and help create change? Yeah, so the peer workforce across Australia is still a pretty tiny workforce, and it is in New Zealand as well. I'd, you know, I'd like to see, you know, twenty or thirty percent of the workforce being yeah. in peer roles. I mean, it could be peer support, or it could be yes. lived experience monitoring, or peer educators, people who are managers, and so on. So, so there's a whole variety of roles that are, you know, researchers. So there's a whole variety of roles, but I would I would really love to see a, a much much bigger presence of people in lived experience roles in the system that yeah. we have now. As we wind up, Mary, what's if people want to get hold of you, if they want to touch base with you to reach out, what's the best way they can do that? Well, they can email me at the yep. Department of Health. Okay. Did I could give the email yeah, address? Yeah. So it's Mary dot O'Hagan with an apostrophe, mm-hmm. and the O'Hagan is spelt O H A G A N. Health dot Vic dot gov dot au. Perfect. And are there any final words you want to say in closing, Mary, as we round out the podcast? Final words. I think we, I I had quite a few years of despondency about how things were going. I now feel a little bit more optimistic. Yeah. And I think Victoria's the best place to be at the moment. Yes. And I hope that other states in Australia follow suit. Certainly leading the way and doing some some great things and hopefully a lot of those initiatives come to fruition and we see some real change coming through. Yeah. Mary, thanks so much for your time. I appreciated talking to you and thanks for sharing your journey, your story with our listeners and your thoughts. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.